Okay, so welcome back to another lecture in contract law. And in this particular lecture, I have some good news for you all, which is that we are finally going to finish talking about the basic rule of contractual formation. So as you'll no doubt recall, way back in lecture two, I introduced the basic rule of contractual formation, which states that in order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be an offer, there must be acceptance, there must be consideration, there must be intention to create legal relations, and, if applicable, there must be compliance with any necessary formalities of contractual formation. So that's what we're going to talk about in this lecture, the necessary formalities of contractual formation. Now, as a general rule of thumb here, one of the distinctive features of the English common law tradition, which we follow here in Ireland, is that there are no formal requirements ordinarily for contracts. It's only in the exceptional case that there's a formal requirement. So what does that mean in practice? So the concept or idea of a formality is not well defined in law, but basically a formality is any kind of specific behavior or form of speech or conduct that parties have to abide by or perform or engage in in order to form a legally binding contract. So, you know, classically in the Roman law tradition, and I mentioned this in other lectures, you have to stipulate, uh, use a particular form of words to stipulate that you're about to enter into a legally binding contract. The English common law tradition doesn't agree with that. So any formula of words can be sufficient to create a binding contract. Any type of communication or any type of interaction, behavioral interaction between parties could in principle, be sufficient to form a binding contract. Now, obviously, they have to fit with the requirements of offer and acceptance and consideration and so forth, but there's no stipulation set down in law as to the exact type of communication or form of words that needs to be used. And this is sometimes lauded as one of the great strengths of the English common law tradition is that it doesn't impose these formal requirements on contractual formation. That said, there are some exceptions to this. There are certain kinds of contracts where there are formal requirements. Now, I'm not going to go through every possibility in this lecture. I'm just going to be going to discuss the main one. So the main formal requirement that is sometimes set down in statute law is that in order for there to be a binding legal contract, the contractual agreement must be evidenced in writing. So it must be set down in words on the page it doesn't have to be a physical page, it can be a digital page too, in some way. So it's important to draw a distinction between two phrases that are sometimes used in case law. There's a distinction to be drawn between a contract that is made in writing. So this is a contract where the terms of the agreement between the parties are actually written down on paper or on a digital file somehow and signed off on by both parties. So in a sense, the offer and acceptance and the conditions of the contract are all set down in writing before a contract is formed. Evidenced in writing has a different meaning. This arises when a contract can actually be concluded orally, but written evidence must be provided to show that the contract has been agreed and formed. Now, I'll say exactly what kind of evidence is needed a little bit later on in this lecture, so We'll go through the details on what you actually have to provide in this written memorandum about the contract in order to satisfy this requirement. But first, I want to go into a little bit of the history behind this formal requirement that agreements must be evidenced in writing. 
and then through the main categories of contracts that need to be evidenced in writing. So the main statute that applies here, the very old statute called the Statute of Frauds, which was introduced by William III in England back in 1695. So historical buffs out there will no doubt want to know or want me to mention the fact that William III has a very important role in Irish history insofar as he was the leader of the victorious forces against James II in the Battle of the Boyne, a battle which obviously had several long-lasting implications or effects on the Irish political situation. Now, we're not interested in that for the purposes of this course. What we're interested in is this statute of frauds and its effect on contract law. So look, as a general bit of background here, the statute of frauds, as the name suggests, was created in order to reduce the incidence of fraud in contract law. So there was a problem at the time that people were alleging that contracts had been formed, and it was very difficult to disprove or rebut the evidence that they were introducing to suggest that a contract had been formed, and the courts were getting into lots of difficulty as a result of this. So the statute of frauds was introduced to limit this by stating that certain kinds of contract had to be evidenced in writing, that you couldn't just rely on oral testimony from parties to prove the existence of the contract. And that was hoped to reduce the incidence of fraud. Now, the statute of frauds, which you can still find on irisstatutebook.ie, there have been some amendments to it over the years, but the basic provision of it still applies, is a very archaic and old-fashioned bit of legislative drafting. And so the language used in it is not pleasant to the modern ear. It's very convoluted, difficult to comprehend at times. And Section 2 of the Statute of Fraud set da- sets down the main provision in relation to the formal necessity of providing evidence in writing of certain kinds of contracts. Now, I'm going to read out the entire section, and I do this for two reasons. One is just to give you an illustration or example of how convoluted and difficult statutory wording sometimes can be. But then also I want to kind of break it down and show you that it's maybe not as intimidating as it first seems and we can make sense of it. So I'm going to read through it once first and you're going to be maybe confused by what I'm saying. And then I'll go through it step by step and hopefully you should be less confused. So section two of the 1695 Statute of Frauds says the following. And be it further enacted by the authority aforesaid, that from and after the said feast day of the nativity of St. John the Baptist, which shall be in the said year of our Lord 1696, no action shall be brought whereby to charge any executor or administrator upon any special promise to answer damages out of his own estate, or whereby to charge the defendant upon any special promise to answer for the debt default or miscarriage of another person, or to charge any person upon agreement made upon consideration of marriage, or upon any contract or sale of lands, tenements or hereditaments, or any interest in or concerning them, or upon any agreement that is not to be performed within the space of one year from the making thereof, unless the agreement upon which such action shall be brought, or some memorandum or note thereof, shall be in writing, and signed by the party to be charged therewith, or some other person thereunto by him lawfully authorized. So that's it. That's the full section. Does that make any sense to you? Well, let's try and take away some of the unnecessary elements of it and make sense of it. So what does the, act- what does the section actually say? What it says is that no action shall be brought to a court 
for the purposes of enforcing a contract, for any promise, to answer for the debt, default, or miscarriage of another person. So that's one type of contract that it covers, a contract to, pro- to answer for the debt, default, or miscarriage of another person, or any promise or charge to any person upon any agreement made upon consideration of marriage. It's the second type of agreement covered by the statute. Or any agreement for the sale of lands, tenements, or hereditaments, or any interest in or concerning them. Or any agreement that is not to be performed within the space of one year from the making thereof. Unless that agreement, or some memorandum or note thereof, shall be in writing, signed by the party, to be charged therewith. So to put it another way, what it's saying is that in order for certain kinds of contracts to be legally binding, you have to provide evidence in writing of them. And this section covers four such types of contracts, namely a contract to answer for the debt, default, or miscarriage of another person, a contract made upon consideration of marriage, a contract made for land or any interest or entitlement to land, a contract concerning an agreement that is to be performed after a year, so beyond a year after the agreement is formed, uh, and that's all those four types of contracts have to be evidenced in writing. Now, the most relevant of these in practice is the bit about the contracts for the sale of land or any interest or entitlement to land. And that has been amended by the 2009 Land and Conveyancing Reform Act. So this kind of replaces the old Statute of Frauds Act, but it still says essentially the same thing. So Section 51 of the 2009 Act states the following, that no action shall be brought to enforce any contract for the sale or other disposition of land unless the agreement on which such action is brought or some memorandum or note of it is in writing and signed by the person against whom the action is brought or that person's authorized agent. So you can see here we're zooming forward from 1695 to 2009, and actually the wording in the 2009 Act is pretty much the same as the wording you find in the 1695 Act. and just carries over, in essence, the provision from the 1695 Act. There is also another relevant section of the 1695 Act, Section 13, which, I'm going to read this out to you, states that, No contract for the sale of any goods, wares, or merchandises for the price of £10 sterling or upwards shall be allowed to be good, except the buyer should accept part of the goods so sold and actually receive the same, or give something in earnest to bind the bargain or in part payment, unless there's a memorandum or note in writing. Okay? Now, this particular provision was repeated in the Sale of Goods Act of 1893, And Section 4 of the Sale of Goods Act of 1893 states the exact same thing, that a contract for the sale of goods above the value of £10 shall not be enforceable unless certain conditions are met. Now, again, this isn't maybe of major interest to you, but there was an odd feature of our law for a period of time from the 1893 Sale of Goods Act until 1962, when effectively we had Section 13 of the Statute of Frauds Act and Section 4 of the Sale of Goods Act saying the same thing, but both equally in force. So eventually what happened in 1962 was that Section 13 of the 1695 Act was repealed, and so Section 4 of the 1893 Act is the one that applies. Now in practice this didn't make any difference because it was the same rule, it was just an odd quirk of our statute book. 
And in case you're wondering, the, the sum of 10 pounds was changed over following the adoption of the euro currency to just above 12 euro. Okay. So look, to simplify from all of this, combining the Statute of Frauds Act of 1695 with the Land and Conveyancing Act of 2009 and the Sale of Goods Act of 1893, it seems there are five scenarios in which a contract needs to be in writing or needs to be evidenced in writing. And let me go through those five types of contract now. First, there is the contract to pay the debt of another person. Again, this is actually very practically relevant. You know, oftentimes we guarantee the debts of our marital partners or spouses for the purposes of mortgage contracts and things like that. So those kinds of contractual agreements have to be evidenced in writing. One of the things that arises in case law is that the contract in question must be a contract of guarantee and not a contract of indemnity. And this is a somewhat subtle distinction, but it's important because one of them needs to be evidenced in writing and one of them doesn't. So a contract of guarantee arises where you effectively agree to pay the full amount of the debt of another person. And a contract of indemnity arises where you agree to compensate the person who loses out by the failure to pay the debt. So it's a compensation for loss suffered due to the failure of another person. And they're a subtly different thing. And part of the reason for that is that the amounts might be different. Uh, the amount that you need to pay to compensate somebody for the loss suffered might be less than the amount that you need to pay to return the full amount of the debt. Okay. So that's the first type of contract, the contract to pay the debt of another person. It must be a contract of guarantee. The second type of contract is a contract in consideration of marriage. Now, this is actually quite an archaic concept and probably doesn't really arise in practice anymore. But the thing to note about it is that it's not actually a marital contract, okay? Marriage contracts are kind of null and void at this stage, but I mean, they still exist in principle, but they're highly governed by statute law. And you'll learn about that in family law if you do it. So a contract in consideration of marriage is rather a contract made to support a marital agreement. And the classic example here, which some of you might be familiar with, is the transfer of land as part of like a dowry offered by the father of the bride. That would be a contract in consideration of marriage. So if a father-in-law agreed to transfer money to a son, sorry, transfer land to a son-in-law, that would be a contract in consideration of marriage. And that would need to be evidenced in writing. Now, as I say, this is archaic. It's kind of an old fashioned practice, not really followed anymore. And this provision has in fact been repealed in England. Then the third type of contract is a contract for the sale of lands or any interests therein. And look, in practice, this is by far the most important practical manifestation of this requirement for contracts to be evidenced in writing. So if you ever agree a deal for the sale of land, and you make that agreement by handshake, let's say, that is not legally binding. You need to provide evidence of the agreement in writing. Now, I'm not going to get into this in too much more detail because there's a whole other subject called land law, which you will probably do if you continue legal studies. And that gets into a lot of the nitty gritty on exactly what is needed to form a binding contract for the sale of land. All I'm mentioning here is again, under section 51 of the 2009 Act, it has to be evidenced in writing. Now, there is actually a way of getting around this requirement for a contract for the sale of an interest in land to be evidenced in writing. And that is if you buy a company that owns land. So if you purchase the shares of a company, you become the majority shareholder in a company that owns land, 
then technically you own the land. I mean, the, the company owns the land, but you indirectly own the land. And if you do that, you don't have to provide evidence in writing. And that has arisen in practice in some cases. So there's an Irish case on this point called Guardian Builders Limited versus Sleek Limited. It's a high court decision from the late 1980s, which shows that if you purchase the shares in a company that owns land, and that means that you, in essence, get control of the land, you don't have to provide evidence of that agreement in writing. The fourth type of contract, then, is the contracts not to be performed within one year. So any contract where the promise is not going to be performed until after until 12 months after the agreement is formed, that means you need uh, evidence in writing of that agreement. Now, the rationale for this at the time, which is kind of the rationale underlying the entire con uh, statute of frauds, was that oral testimony becomes less reliable over time, which is probably a fair point. And so it's, you're less able to prove the terms of the agreement 12 months later, or even beyond that. Now, even though that's a requirement that the, con the contract should be evidence in writing if it's not to be performed within one year, this rule doesn't apply if at the time that the agreement was formed, the parties intended for it to be performed within a year. So if there's some delays that weren't anticipated at the time that the agreement was finalized, that means that it doesn't have to be evidenced in writing. It's only where the intention at the time was for the performance to be outside of the 12-month period. So that's the fourth type of contract. And then the fifth type of contract, which is probably the one that maybe raised the most eyebrows when you're listening to this, is the contract for the sale of goods over £10 or now over €12. Euro. This is a very odd rule because you know £10 was a lot of money back in 1695 or back in 1893, and it might have made sense to require evidence in writing for the sale of goods for such a value. Nowadays, it probably doesn't, but it's still a feature of our law. But there are like really easy ways to get around this requirement of providing evidence in writing. And they are set down in the statute. So in the 1893 statute, there are three ways to avoid the requirement to provide evidence in writing of an agreement for the sale of goods over €12. Euro. First, if the buyer accepts and receives part of the goods sold. So if I'm, I don't know, buying a bunch of apples from you and I'm not paying you immediately, but I take some of them away, I then the contract is formed and we don't need to provide any evidence of it in writing because I've accepted part of the goods that are to be sold. The second way of getting around the rule is if the buyer gives something in earnest to bind the bargain. Signature is classically some piece of property to bind the agreement. Cash, credit card details nowadays will count because they give a clear signal of an intention to be bound. And finally then, this is probably the most obvious one, is that if the buyer actually pays for part of the goods at the time that the agreement is formed, then you don't need to evidence it in writing. So in practice, most sales of goods in you know, shops or other commercial enterprises easily avoid this requirement to provide evidence in writing because they will meet one of those three conditions. In fact, many times they'll meet all three of them. The purchaser will take the goods in whole or in part, will provide something to bind the bargain in earnest, like credit card details, and will pay for them at the time. So it's just, it's not that practically relevant, but it is still a feature of our law that you have this need for evidence in writing for a sale of goods over 12 euro. Okay, so those are the five types of contracts that need to be evidenced in writing. 
I promised you that I'd come back to the question of actually what do you need to provide evidence of? What exactly is required to satisfy the demands of the law? So again, you know, the law has been quite generous in terms of defining what is required. What it states is that there must be a memorandum of the contract. And that is really anything that provides written details of the contract, proves that the agreement took place. And again, the reality is that nowadays, most of our communications are in written form, either through email or text message or things like that. And all of those things can count as part of a memorandum that evidences an agreement in writing. The memorandum should contain the names of the parties, or at least some description of the parties to the contract that makes them readily identifiable. It should set down the consideration provided to support the contract, so usually like the sale price involved. It should also contain any essential terms and conditions, although what counts as essential you know, varies from agreement to agreement. Price is usually the most essential condition. Maybe the terms on which goods or services are going to be transferred would also be essential. The memorandum should be signed by the parties to the contract, but the concept of a signature has been broadly interpreted by courts and sometimes like a stamp on a document or a simple mark like an X will count. Also, it's been stipulated in the e-commerce act that electronic signatures in emails or sign-offs in emails, if you say, you know, best wishes, John, or regards or whatever, that will count as a signature. So again, a very you know, generous interpretation means it's relatively easy to meet the formal requirements in practice. And another thing that has emerged in practice is that the memorandum doesn't have to be a single document. You can actually join together multiple documents to make up the memorandum that provides evidence of the agreement in writing. So chains of emails, chains of letters can be bundled together to constitute a memorandum that provides evidence of an agreement in writing. So look, there must be a memorandum which can count as any kind of written communication. The memorandum must contain the names of the parties, the consideration involved in the contract, and any essential terms and conditions. It must be signed, but the concept of a signature is quite broad. And we can join together multiple documents, if needs be, to provide evidence in writing. So that means, again, even though it might sound like a bit of a headache that you have to provide evidence in writing for a contract, it can be pretty straightforward in practice to actually satisfy the requirements. So just two other things to mention before wrapping up on this notion of formalities in contract law, again, particularly having to do with providing evidence in writing. One is that you should always watch out for any documents that are headed subject to contract. And this is a very common phrase that's used by solicitors when they're exchanging letters because they want to avoid any assumption that what they're writing is going to be part of a legally binding contract. So if a document is headed by the phrase or contains the phrase subject to contract, that means it cannot form part of a written memorandum that provides evidence of the agreement. So for example, if you ever work as a solicitor or for a solicitor, when they are writing letters having to do with the sale of land, they will head all those letters initially subject to contract to show that these letters do not form part of the legally binding agreement. And only once all the terms and conditions within the contract are agreed between the parties will they drop that phrase. And one other thing then in practice is that there is an old equitable rule which says that if a contract has been performed in part, the party who performed their side of the agreement might be entitled to equitable remedies. Usually 
some kind of compensation for losses accrued or restitution for losses accrued. We saw that in the Cleveland Bridge engineering uh, case. And that can kind of significantly limit the need for a memorandum. So if there's been part performance, you don't actually need to provide evidence of an agreement in writing. But the one thing to note about that is that equitable remedies are more limited than um, contractual remedies. That's something you probably cover in the second half of this course. Contractual remedies entitle you to what you would have gotten if the contract had been performed, whereas equitable remedies ordinarily entitle you to compensation for losses accrued to you. Okay, so that is that, and that brings us to the end of the first part of this course on the rules of contractual formation. We're going to move on now in the next part of the course to a different topic, which has to do with the terms of a contract, how terms get incorporated or included into a contract, what kinds of terms can you include in a contract, and how do we interpret the terms within a contract.